0: Um, so it was bringing the stores into alignment with the marketing, the marketing in a sense was the leading edge and the stores had to follow s- suit, so to speak. Um, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise the marketing would have seemed really phony to people and that would have really eroded things over time. But so a lot of it was rationalizing the leadership of the stores, making sure that the stores understood what we were promising, what the guarantee was.
1: want to cause no problems. I just want to live my life, but I keep on hearing about nonsense. Yeah. Me and my dons ain't mobsters, yeah. but you know when you see imposters. We know how to read them faces, same way you know how to read them comments. If you want to talk, let's talk, but around right here, make sure you walk, walking, your talk, is constant. Well, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Death to Vanilla uh, podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Burkhart, and I have an amazing guest on today. Um, his name's uh, Charlie Bruesler, Bruesler, wrestler. sorry, yes, uh, no, I right. get chipped up on that. Um, but, uh, he has quite a history of working in marketing, uh, multiple industries and is currently now working, uh, in the nonprofit sector. And so he has some really cool stuff that he's going to be talking about today that I'm really excited for him to share. And so, uh, Charlie, if you could go ahead and give us a little nutshell, uh, just a, a history on, um, who you are and what you've been a part of and, and then we can launch right into it.
0: Okay, great. And thank you for having me on the podcast, uh, Steve. My pleasure. Uh, I, I'll start at the right now, and then I'll work backwards a little bit. Um, currently, I am the co-founder of an organization called The Life You Can Save that was started by Peter Singer, who's one of the most famous philosophers in the world, an ethicist, who makes the, the statement in a book called The Life You Can Save that was originally written in 2009, but we uh, re uh, re-read it a 10th anniversary edition in 2019, which actually is available on our website at thelifeyoucansave.org. You can download the book for free and it's been read by a number of celebrities if you wanna have it in the audio including Paul Simon, Kristen Bell, Stephen Fry. So a lot of you will like to listen to it. Some of you might like to read it, but the argument of the book is that if we can afford to help other people, we should be less concerned about where they live and more concerned about the impact of our donations to help them. And that the most impact we can have is in the developing world, uh, Africa, South Asia, where a dollar goes extraordinarily far farther. So Peter and I have been developing this organization with the team over the last like, almost nine years now. I served as the volunteer executive director for a number of years until uh, this past February, when I turned that over to a guy named Ricard Vikstrom. So my current role is to help with strategy, marketing and fundraising for the life you can say, but I'm not in the weeds of the day-to-day operations. Going all the way back, um, I got a PhD in psychology, in clinical and social psychology um, and, worked for a long time as a graduate professor, as director of behavioral medicine and founded a teaching clinic for the treatment of anxiety disorders. And then oddly enough, back in, uh, I believe it was, let's see, 1993, George Zimmer, the founder and CEO of the Men's Warehouse, recruited me to leave academia and come to the Men's Warehouse to start a training program. The men's had just gone public and he wanted somebody that he, he had known me since childhood. He wanted somebody he knew who shared a certain set of values in terms of being very employee-oriented and he thought was coachable because I didn't know anything about business or the retail business in particular. And he wanted me to start a training program, which I did know about. So I did that and one thing led to another and I was there for, gosh, almost 18 years. And started by doing the training program and then developed an employee relations department and eventually became uh, president running all of our stores. We had about 700 stores when I left uh, across multiple divisions. And I also was uh, in charge of the marketing department, although George, as those of you, many of you know, was the spokesperson for the men's warehouse and very involved in marketing all those years until both of us left. Uh, I stepped down in two thousand and eight to pursue something more socially oriented, and George left under different circumstances that I won't get into now, but not actually all those pleasant circumstances. And the company has not done well. I don't want to say it's causal because we left, but it certainly hasn't done well uh, since we left, and I think a lot of it had to do with a really terrible acquisition uh, that it really set the company back. But anyway, those were really great days for the men's warehouse and was a really interesting experience. But now I'm totally focused on the nonprofit, The Life You Can Save, and trying to raise as much money as possible for people who live in extreme poverty, where we can reduce suffering, uh, empower livelihoods, and actually save lives, uh, as I like to say, from the comfort of our own living room, uh, at very cost effectively. So in a nutshell, Stephen, that's it. A little bit rambling. Just in terms of my personal life, I'm actually, been married essentially since high school, uh, started dating my wife in high school and we got married uh, a long time ago and uh, been married ever since. And we have two children. I have a son who has a daughter and a partner. Uh, They are organic farmers and they live a mile away from us here on the Northwest corner of Washington state near the Olympic mountains. And I have a daughter who doesn't live that far away as the crow flies. Uh, on the Canadian border who is a senior county administrator in one of the agricultural counties uh, in, again in northwestern Washington she also has a child and a husband so very close family spend a lot of time uh, with my family and of course with my wife and uh, as far as hobbies go I spend a lot of time walking I'm kind of a long distance walker and um, reading and uh, watching and streaming uh, European soccer on television. And uh, those are kind of my hobbies and that's who I am. And really excited to be here today.
1: That's cool. Actually, so just before the pandemic happened, I think what, two February's ago, uh, I actually had an opportunity to go to Washington and what a beautiful state. And um, I managed to somehow time it uh, where it was less cloudy than normal because uh, yeah. i was over in seattle and so i got to actually see the top of mount rainier which apparently is a pretty rare occasion and so they joke that i brought my arizona weather with me um the fact that it was actually visible and so but man i got to do some like nature hikes and uh of course uh visited the public market and kind of that you know it's a little touristy thing to do but it was really cool but man what a beautiful place so i'm, I'm a little jealous uh it's a it's a fine place to live at least yeah, yeah, especially really nice if you enjoy place. long walks right
0: And by, yeah, and by the way, I live at the base of the other mountains, not the Cascades where Mount Rainier is, but they're beautiful mountains in the Olympic mountains. But it is true that you can see both Mount Baker in the Cascades and Mount Rainier most days. We do have a lot of clouds, but they are visible more than that. Uh, But we uh, we do like to discourage people by talking about how terrible the weather is here. And uh, (laughs) that way we we won't have quite uh, the influx of all the Californians coming
1: here. Yeah, uh, we we are taking all of them as far as I understand. So (laughs) it's a pretty mass exodus into our state. So we we can't even build homes fast enough uh, for people to live here. So it's a wild time we live in. So You know, it's really interesting to me, like one of the one of the first things, even before we get into the whole like marketing aspect of it, that I'm really kind of surprised that I'm guessing it's just really good relationships that you made, but you really jumped in between some like really seemingly unrelated industries. Right, so you're in the academia world, and then somehow you're working at a retail store, which apparently is because of a lifelong friend. And then you're jumping from that into nonprofit, it just seems like these completely different worlds. And on this, at least on the outside perspective, it seems uh, kind of interesting, like, I feel like people usually just kind of stay within their wheelhouse, and you've really jumped around a lot. So has that been just kind of like a stroke of luck, or just have, be, be you know, has your love of uh, serving others really helped make those connections? Or how has that kind of worked for you?
0: I don't know if it really stems from my love of serving others. I think certainly the work that I'm doing now with The Life You Can Save comes from a real sense that I can make an impact in the world, which I think is just a wonderful feeling. And it helps me feel like I'm living up to my own values, maybe uh, more than any other time in my life, except raising my children and, and trying to be also a good husband and a good executive at the men's warehouse. But So I think a lot of now is driven by a real strong desire to live up to a set of values I've had all my life, but really wasn't doing very much about. So the transition from the men's warehouse and stepping down as the potential new CEO to follow George and, and putting that aside was really easy for me because I was 59 when I decided to do it. And I felt like if I didn't do something more consistent with my own values, I never was going to. And so it was, even though it was a huge jump into something that was brand new, working with Peter Singer and the team, um, the idea of being a leader, putting together uh, a coherent uh, strategy, the idea of leading uh, a group of people and empowering them to do a really good job without having to be micromanaged, all of those things came second nature to me after my experience um, at the Men's Warehouse. As far as the transition from being a behavioral psychologist to the Men's Warehouse, it really, the behavioral psychology guided the training program that I started for the Men's Warehouse. So it was a big leap and I didn't know very much about business or certainly tailored clothing, but I did know about how to motivate people to do a good job and and get over their anxieties. which is exactly what the training program was. So if somebody only sold one pair of shoes, they could learn to sell two pairs of shoes. If they only sold four suits a week, they could learn to sell six suits a week. And uh, so it was a pretty easy transition intellectually. It was a little bit hard emotionally to go from academia to business, um, but I was with a great group of people. And so that made it a lot easier.
1: Right. Well, I would actually love to To dive into what you did at the men's warehouse Um, and obviously you did a lot of different things there. Um, But as far as let's talk a little bit about the transition they made so you you walk into the situation where. You know the the place is already up and running right, but then you're starting to implement some of your psychology into their marketing, what kind of things did you start working with and changing first and kind of like repositioning how it is that they talked about their business.
0: So, as far as the marketing go, it was I was involved much more in the continuity of the marketing that had started by George uh, Zimmer and Rich Goldman who was his co-founder. As far as the way the stores ran and the and the sales program, that was where I was much more innovative than in the marketing. But since the focus here today is marketing, let me stick with the marketing and talk about what George and Richard decided to do and why I think it worked so well for so long. Um, what they decided to do was to put the stores in secondary locations where there was not this extraordinarily expensive rent like in the regional malls. So the ideal men's house location and this is a type of marketing was across the street from a regional mall. So there would be reasonable visibility even though it was a destination wasn't in the mall. They realized that men don't really like to go to malls. They don't like to shop. In the first place, they don't like to wade through 10 stores in order to get to the store they want to go in. So they were very smart. They spent less on real estate, but concomitantly what they did is they spent more on marketing. And what they did is they viewed real estate rent and marketing as one expense number. So roughly, let's just say they wanted to spend 13% of sales on, mar- on combination of rent and marketing. I'm picking a number that I think is pretty accurate back then. So they were going to spend 13% of sales on rent marketing, but 3% was rent and 10% was marketing, which was an extraordinary amount for a middle market retail company. And they did a lot of branding advertising in those days. This was before the sales dominated retail, before the internet. And so they were able to do a lot of branding and they built market by market. So they would start in a market, a a DMA. They would saturate that market with stores. They wouldn't try to do any national advertising. And over time, as the brand got built, they could reduce marketing as a percentage of sales. And by reducing marketing as a percentage of sales, they could add that to the bottom line because that money would drop immediately to the bottom line. So if you can drop over a period of years in any given DMA, you can drop marketing as a percentage of sales by 3%, 4%, 5%. You can imagine the money that you're dropping to the bottom line. I don't know if this is helpful or what you're interested in, Stephen, for me to talk about. So all I did was really take I think what were reasonably good leadership skills, motivational skills, and make sure the marketing department as it grew was a place that people really wanted to work, that we could recruit good people and that George and Rich's strategy could be maintained. Um, And one of the things we did is we brought the media buying in-house, which was something that I was able to do. Um, It's actually kind of a funny story. I went up to Canada one day to when we bought Moore's, which was a similar store to the Men's West, the Men's Wear Moore's clothing for men, and uh, I was meeting with the media buyers for Moore's, and uh, they were they came from a big big uh, group, uh, national group, uh, international group of media buyers. And uh, after meeting, there were thirteen women in the group. After meeting them, I turned to Rich. After the meeting, I said, "Why don't we just instead of paying all this money to this agency?" to why don't we just hire these women? So we ended up in one fell swoop, like over one day period, bringing all the media buying in-house. And so we hired all the women and from then on for the rest of my time at the Men's House, instead of outsourcing media buying, we bought it all ourselves. And it was really, it was very, it was kind of innovative, I think at the time, um, but it was good. So we brought media in-house, but the thing that George did, I think that was so brilliant, was he didn't change the general strategy, even though people kept telling him he should switch the general strategy. So he remained the spokesperson. He remained the guy that said, I guarantee it at the end of the commercials. He didn't change the punchline, the tagline, even though people told him he should. And the basic strategy was we bought this suit at a department store for X, but we, we sell the identical suit at the men's warehouse for $150 less, roughly speaking. And it was a very simple marketing campaign on television and radio that allowed the company to build its brand market by market by market till it became a national brand.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I think in general, um, I feel like the men's side of the industry has has been underserved for a long time. And I and when I think back to like the times that I got, like. Uh, a suit for prom or something like that like there was few places that had any sort of like masculine appeal to them except for the men's warehouse so it was it was interesting to have that kind of environment in a time where that was very very rare i mean it still is pretty rare but it's definitely way more rare back then that you'd have such a a masculine experience and uh, you know which like you said that's why they didn't go into malls. And funny enough, where I live in Phoenix, Arizona, right by where I grew up, there was a mall and there is a men's warehouse across the street. So now that's that's making sense of why they uh, had that place there is they're, they're uh, benefiting from the traffic physically uh, from people going to the mall. That's uh, it's just, obviously it's a smart move. It worked.
0: And so. also you have to, with a suit, you have to pick you fit it but then you have to go and pick it up. So it's two visits. So it's much easier to just go to a destination store across from the mall, park, buy your suit. And then when you come back to pick up your suit, you can easily park and you don't have to walk through the whole mall. There were a lot of things that George and Richie did that were extremely, uh, I think, clever, but I think they were all very simple. It had to do with repetition of the same general message. Um, and resisting the temptation to get really uh, sexy. Now it's interesting because Beyond Vanilla would suggest that getting really innovative and sexy is important and I agree with that. But in those days, what really stood out was the consistency of a marketing campaign. And if you think about some of the great marketing campaigns that are more of the Mad Men Day, they were marketing campaigns like Avis's campaign, we Try Harder or Kellogg's uh, Tony the Tiger or uh, or all of the various camp- Alka-Seltzer, Speedy Alka-Seltzer. So there were these these iconic campaigns. Like I think the only one I can think of that's very similar to that today is Geico. All these nonsense introductions, but in the end it's uh, 15 seconds can save you 15% or more. And that's what people remember. And the introduction is just to get their attention. But it can be pretty goofy, and that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's this idea that there's a rise in entertainment value in industries that really have no entertainment value. But they actually have to have that to be able to grab people's attention immediately because, I'm, you know even when you watch uh old movies the pacing is just ridiculously slow in comparison like you watch a movie like uh like i don't know if you ever watched like alien but it takes like an hour before something interesting happens but you know because it's like this slow build and stuff like that and like now if you had a movie that took an hour for something to happen it ain't it ain't gonna make it <laughs> no people don't <laughs> let have alone much be a cult classic
0: fan. right yeah yeah no, absolutely
1: not um Okay, so when you said you worked more on everything being more cohesive from ms warehouse, what kind of things were kind of floating around that you ended up gathering together? uh was it just that their messaging wasn't uh consistent everywhere they were advertising, or what kind of things did you end up bringing into alignment
0: well we wanted I was also head of store, so we wanted the store experience to be very similar to what we were promising on the on the marketing front, so a lot of what I did was not innovating so much in the marketing because it was going very well, but making sure that the store experience matched it so that the tailor shop brand the way George would talk about the tailor shop. And if there was a problem that the, that the manager wouldn't like blow the customer off, but that the manager would be extremely sensitive to making sure that they were delivering the appropriate customer service. Um, so it was bringing the stores into alignment with the marketing. The marketing in a sense was the leading edge and the stores had to follow s- suit, so to speak. Um, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, the marketing would have seemed really phony to people and that would have really eroded things over time. But So a lot of it was rationalizing the leadership of the stores, making sure that the stores understood what we were promising, what the guarantee was um, and not uh, not doing anything other than kind of what just Bezos did with Amazon, which I think the motto is the customer knows best. What does the customer want? What does the customer want? I think he's always asking that question. And I think early on at the Men's Warehouse, which was not characteristic of middle market retail, we were always asking, what does the customer want? What is our marketing promise? How do we deliver that? And how do we bring best practice from store in Phoenix, Arizona, to a store in Portland, Oregon, to a store in Ann Arbor, Michigan. How can those stores be consistent? There was an old Holiday Inn ad that I remember that maybe some of your older viewers remember called the best surprise is no surprise. That was the tagline for Holiday Inn. And it was a really wonderful thing was they're basically saying, look, all of our inns, all of our motels are similar. And you, when you're traveling, the last thing you wanna do is walk in someplace and like have it be horribly different. And so I think what we accomplished at the Men's West, we had a marketing program that made a particular promise, and then we delivered a store experience across hundreds and hundreds of stores throughout the country that would would deliver on that promise and that experience.
1: So, what other th- marketing things did you guys do? So, you said you brought media buyers in house. So, and I re- I remember seeing TV commercials all the time. Um, but what kind of like other marketing stuff did you guys do? As as far as like physically, digitally? Okay. Um,
0: so the digital, the digital world really came just about as I was leaving. And unfortunately mm-hmm. I did not learn about digital marketing very much. But when we move into talking about the life, you can say we can talk about that in a few minutes. But we really just did two types of advertising. We, most of the time I was there. We did television advertising, which was this comparison advertising where we were really talking about the experience at the men's house versus the department stores, which was our main competition, uh, both at the price level, but also at the service level. So we were focused on not only price, but service. And a lot of our ads were ads where we showed people getting superior service. The branding ads were much more about the service and about the store environment. So we did a whole campaign. I can't remember if this was my idea or not. It might've been. Maybe not. I don't remember. But we did a campaign called the Myth Series. And the Myth Series was all about these various myths about the men's warehouse, like that the men's warehouse is a warehouse. And we had a picture of this big warehouse, W-A-R-E instead of W-E-A-R. And we, were, we said, no, the men's warehouse isn't a warehouse. It's a, it's a fine specialty store. So the ad went from being in a warehouse to being in a specialty store. So we were trying to debunk the myth that we were just a cheap warehouse where you could get clothing that in fact we were a middle market retailer but we had the service that you could expect at nordstrom's or any of the more upper end stores so that was one campaign we called it the myth campaign and it would be flash up at the beginning be like myth number 11 and and there were all these different myths but what we were trying to do was anticipate the criticisms that our customers might have or more specifically our non-customers might have, and then subsuming that criticism by identifying the potential concern and then showing why that wasn't the case. So a lot of it, at least in my mind, and this is probably my psychology, was anticipating the concerns that customers or non-customers might have, and then subsuming them by attacking uh, in in a clever commercial, hopefully, uh, the very thing that they were concerned about and saying, it, not coming right out and saying, oh, you're concerned about this, we we are this, but knowing underneath what they could be concerned about and just showing an ad that would violate that concern. And I would urge marketing people in general to try to anticipate and subsume the concerns that they're, uh, that they're, the people might have. For example, if people are having bad experiences with the supply chain uh, in any retailer, you know, you, they might be worried that they're going to get something from China and the quality is going to be crappy. And so I think you've got to like know that the customer is concerned about that and somehow address that concern, legitimately address it. You have to like really be able to deliver. So I think one of the things I brought was the whole psychology of anticipating and subsuming the customer's concerns um, and doing it in uh, different ways. So another campaign we had was we had George in a classroom, which we called suit you, because we had these classes where we trained all the salespeople would come at least once or more to California where they would get trained. And George, in this commercial, we, we simulated a training class with about 25 people and we gave people questions to ask George. And then George would just ad lib improv the answer. And then we would of course edit it. But it had this feeling of like, George, what about the customer who comes in with this? Or what about the customer? So I did those ads uh, with, with Rich Golden and Jamie Maxwell, who was the vice president of marketing. We did those for a few years and we got a lot of mileage out of it. But then I remember in one year, I think it was maybe 1997, our sales dipped and we'd been running these suits you ads for a while. So we hired an agency, which we really hadn't done in a long time. And uh, we did. We took it from being in-house to an agency and they came up with a much uh, cleaner, kind of cooler George, if you will. His whole persona was much less a salesperson and much more kind of uh, sophisticated clothier, if you will. Yeah. And uh, that transition drove our sales for many, many years up. So it was like, we had done a good job, but then we hired somebody because we'd hit a wall and, and they could do a better job. And so that was, that was kind of another uh, experience. Unfortunately, in the 2008, during the, the recession, um, of that recession, advertising, as you know, became very promotional. And that's when we stopped doing branding ads, when everything was buy one, get one, for free um, and I think that the advertising really deteriorated after that. And uh, we got, it devolved into just a price war and suits were, which were a commodity. Uh, it was just who would sell the cheap, the suit, the at the least expensive suit with the biggest discount and the discounts get obviously eroding uh, your clothing margin over time and so, um, but there was nothing we could do because if you, because only promotional advertising got people into the store. And that was about the time that I was, fortunately for me, leaving the Men's Rouse to join the Life You Can Save. But I think when we went from one sale a year to two sales a year to highly promotional advertising, that combined with uh, what I think was a, a difficult uh, acquisition was really the reason the Men's Rouse uh, over time didn't do as well.
1: Right. Well, because then at that point, in my perspective, you were, you were brand building, but in the opposite way, right? Cause you'd done all this brand building to look more sophisticated, which drove sales. And then now because of all the sales offerings and promotions, you're essentially brand building your discount store. That's right. Is my perspective and, on it.
0: Right. And I don't think we really had a choice and I'm not blaming the leadership that did it. Uh, because I think the environment just became insanely promotional um, in retail. And now we have the transition to the internet where once something is sold on the internet, it really does become more of a commodity. Um, and it's just people can look for price. And if you can get the widget for you know 18 cents less than you can get the widget on another site. Um, and obviously we have Amazon, um, and if you ask uh, anybody at Walmart um, or even Target these days what their number one competition is, they would definitely say Amazon. Everybody would say Amazon. So it's very, very different. I don't know how much retail advertising Burkhart uh, advises on.
1: Uh, not much, not not specifically with retail. Um, but what I do, <laughs> but what, I mean, well, what I find interesting is because of the fact that there's this like war in the digital space over you know price and convenience and uh, uh, stuff like that it really blows my mind that more stores haven't focused on experience kind of like what you guys really did initially to make sure the the in-store experience was consistent and good it's like i walk into places all the time where people are grumpy or the store isn't super clean or it's not organized or they're just not offering anything unique and it's like if if the competition is so fierce, and really the experience that you have in person can be a defining factor, then why are you phoning that in? That just doesn't make any sense to me, and I think is is a real disappointment, especially coming back from like the post COVID stuff, is a lot of businesses have had a really hard time. I think, um, really brushing up on their in cust or their in person experience, which, like you said, is is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most primary differentiators between them and another business, because like you said, if they just find something for a couple cents cheaper or a buck cheaper, they can get it a day sooner. Why wouldn't they?
0: Right. And I think that part of George's uh, brilliance, if you will, that a lot of us then carried forward for him because he became less and less involved in the day to day of the business as all business people do as their companies grow from 100 million to 1.5 billion, which is what happened during the time I was there, but he hired leaders and I selected leaders and other people selected leaders that treated employees extremely well relative to other retail companies. And we built this culture and George had started it, but we built this culture where people really felt that the company cared about them and they felt like they were part of something It was fairly significant. I mean, I don't want to make too big a deal of it. It was just a business, but it was definitely abnormal for retail. And when we took over Moore's in Canada, which had been a largely promotional newspaper ad driven business and put them on television and we started having all these uh, annual meetings and bringing Uh, store managers to California or or to locations within Canada for these summer meetings we did and really started treating employees differently because at Moores it had started as a a factory-based business that had retail outlets and we were a store-based business that had a factory only one most of our factories were in other locations Um, I think the employees couldn't believe it they just could not believe seeing executives like go into the tailor shop the first time they got into the store and like spending time talking to the tailors and selling on the floor and being one of the people in the store and our sales at Moore's went up a lot um, as a combination of the tv advertising and the type of culture that we were able to build there over a couple of years and it made all the difference in the world and for financial reasons and other reasons, that's just not happening in retail these days.
1: I wonder if that's why it's so hard for them to find employees.
0: <laughs> it's certainly got to be part of it. You know, you read all these articles about why why it's so hard to find employees, and I know, you know, Republicans in general were saying it's because the Democrats paid people too much uh, during COVID and they weren't incentivized to work, and Democrats have their own theories about why people are not, uh, why people are having trouble finding people. Um, I don't know all the reasons, but I can tell you that I have such horrible customer service in so many of the times I do go into stores. And when I do get good customer service, be it in a supermarket or a clothing store, um, I have such, I, I just have this tremendous loyalty to them. Um, I, I will go out of my way. I mean, like my dentist, for example, I moved away from where my dentist, and I don't mean just her, but I mean her all of her office employees and everybody and the environment. And I now travel a long way to go to that dentist office. Yes, I really like my dentist, but it's also, I think the people in are really uh, wonderful. There's almost no turnover of staff. And I think it starts with how they're treated in, in their work environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I 100% believe that we're in the, because of the rise of entrepreneurship and people working from home, we're in this shift where it used to be that like employees were the commodity, but now it's really like the workplaces, the commodity. And I don't think a lot of businesses are, are humble enough to realize that, that instead of treating people like crap because they have ten ton other people that are applying, if that person leaves, it's like now the opposite. It's like now people are being picky about where they work. And now a business is like, oh shoot, like I gotta like treat people well because uh, I actually don't even have enough people to work at full capacity. Uh, it's quite a shift.
0: Yeah, my my wife was calling her doctor the other day because nine days before she had asked for a prescription refill, and my wife is a doctor, by the way. And nine days before she had asked for a prescription refill and nobody had answered, she followed up, nobody had answered. So now she was calling to see about the prescription refill. She was on hold for 55 minutes before anybody in this doctor. This is not a huge hospital. This is just a doctor's office,
1: Right. That's unreal.
0: I've heard that, at this is not stories, but I've heard that some of the airlines, there's a five and a half hour wait to get to speak to a person. I heard a story about that the other day. Um, But as far as marketing goes, I think it's important for people, this may be something that all your listeners think and know already. Marketing starts with the environment of the organization and how people in that organization are treated, because you can do all the clever marketing in the world, but if the people who are the face of the brand, if you will, don't treat the people who come because of the marketing, then it's not going to work. The marketing has to be integrated with the culture of the company and how people well, even a, uh, in an online company where there's a call center or whatever, uh, you really have to try to treat people better. Unless you're Amazon, and then if you're Amazon, maybe you can get away with it. But but most places can't.
1: Right. Well, and it, you know, I think it's interesting. I think you make a really incredible point because even looking back to the time, um, you know, thankfully a long time ago when I worked in uh, the grocery uh industry is like you know just like a regular employee you know i worked at uh i don't know if you guys have fries uh food we, and did. Drug store. we did we okay. did yeah do you guys have sprouts as well
0: not here not in the okay. northwest Bummer. but i did in california have fries i haven't yes. seen a fries in
1: a while oh really huh so i worked at both fries and sprouts sprouts was like a much smaller company um kind of like a like a really small um uh whole foods i don't know if you guys have whole foods we do have
0: Whole
1: Foods. Um, yeah. Which so is
0: Amazon, of course.
1: <laughs> oh really?
0: Oh yeah, Amazon owns
1: Whole Foods now. Oh wow. Well that's insane. Amazon is taking over the world. Um <laughs> but sure, it yeah. was right. It was interesting, though, uh, to work at both because I think when I worked at Sprouts, people probably actually thought I was a salesman for them because all I could do is say good things about them all the time, not necessarily because of how well they treated people but because of like the quality and the care that they had and the products they offer. And so it's funny because early you mentioned about the men's warehouse, you know, that you didn't want to like talk it up too much because at the end of the day, it was just a business. But when you actually make something that people actually think matters, and they care about it and they think it's of quality, like they're proud to work for a place that's doing that and they're, they're excited to talk about it with their friends and family and that's like marketing you, you almost can't afford to pay, you almost, you really can't pay for it right because at the end of the day it's like that personal referral and credibility um, that you know you can't just get from running an ad. Uh, but yeah, it matters a lot. You know what I mean? And I think it does, when you have a quality product, it does get people fired up, uh, that work there and it makes them feel better about their job. I, I know it did for me at least.
0: Well, at the life you can say we are struggling to let people know how incredible our product is. I mean, to be real, I mean, we, this is, our product is so much better than anything that we had at the Men's West because we're offering people 22 highly curated nonprofits that literally save lives. You can restore a child's sight for $50. It, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars to train a guide dog to help somebody who's blind, which is a very important thing to do. But you can literally keep a child from being blind For $50. And we have across the 22 nonprofits that we support, we have all kinds of opportunities like this. But getting the word out is not easy. And we are still trying to figure out the marketing. And part of it is that we just, the marketing, as you know, is expensive. And social media has not delivered for nonprofits nearly uh, as much as we would have hoped, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, and, uh, or even LinkedIn. And so we're, what we, what we need at The Life You Can Save is some very wealthy person who says, this is an incredibly important product, and we have to figure out how to get the word out about it. Because if we could get the word out about it, we could be saving lives for very little money. We could be restoring whole communities. And so I think we've really struggled to figure out in the digital world how to do that or how to get enough money to enter the same world that the men's House was in through television, direct response, television, uh, radio. Um, but there are brands in the nonprofit world that are doing that have enough money to do that. I mean, if you look at St. Jude's Hospital, um, you look at UNICEF, um, you look at American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, there are the very well-funded brands can get the word out, but it's very expensive. And so we're, you know, I would like to give you uh, like, okay, these are all the clever things we've done at The Life You Can Save, and this is why we're so successful, but I can't because we haven't, we haven't really solved the problem. That said, we still are on average over the last three years, raising $17, for a donor that gives us a dollar on our operations, we'll be able to raise $17 for these charities. So we're still being very impactful and very effective, but we're, we've are we moved $40 million or so to these nonprofits over the last several years. And we wanna be moving hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, because in the United States alone in any given year, believe it or not, individual donors donate $300 billion dollars and so you know we believe that if we're we're supporting some of the most effective nonprofits in the world helping the neediest people in the world living in extreme poverty um, we should be getting a good chunk of that 300 billion and we're obviously not so uh, that's the challenge for us as a marketing group right now
1: right now it makes sense Um, I know earlier when we talked, you said you were going to share a couple of things that weren't working for you guys, uh, which I was blown away by because most people don't talk about that. So uh, if you're able to be, so maybe if you can contrast a couple of things that like maybe have worked a little bit better, maybe like things you tried and made a little bit of a shift and then they worked a little bit better, even if they're not performing, maybe necessarily your standards, I would love to hear uh, some of the things you've worked okay. on and tried and just like that. Cause I know a lot of people share common frustrations with things not working. Um, so I well, think you'd be.
0: Yeah. I'd happy to talk about it and sorry to interrupt that.
1: But... No, go for it.
0: Uh, so let me start with one type of marketing that didn't work and then how we transitioned and how I think we can make it work. So I got an offer to do a billboard in times square and it was very cheap. And it's funny, it reminded me of an old men's warehouse ad, when's a deal not a deal, George was saying. And the idea is, a deal's not a deal if you end up buying something you don't want, but you get it cheap, right? So that's when a deal is yes. not a deal, right? Like on sale. And this was an ad we made when we didn't have a lot of sales. So George was going up against, okay, you can get this thing for cheap on a sale, but do you really want it? So I got an offer to do an ad for one of our nonprofits for a billboard in Times Square. I don't even remember the dollars, but my wife and I decided rather than use, like you can save money since we're major donors anyway, we would just pay for the billboard ourselves. So we donated the money to the charity and and we did the billboard and we got zero from it. I mean, imagine it seems so seductive. We had a single billboard in Times Square with a QR code, huge billboard like 43rd street and Broadway or something. So it didn't work. And why didn't it work? I think it didn't work because it wasn't a campaign. It was just like, here it is in Times Square, single billboard to to help people in Africa, but there wasn't like a campaign. And so I think the lesson that we learned there is if we're going to use outdoor advertising, we have to have a campaign. It has to be something people see in multiple locations, like bus shelters or or wherever, not just a single billboard that a tourist sees in Times Square. So, we then got an advertising company in Australia uh, to donate uh, outdoor advertising on bus shelters. And unfortunately, it was during the lockdown. So, we didn't, wasn't really a great test, mm. but it worked a lot better. And it was a full on campaign. It went with something like, What does Stephen Fry and Kristen Bell have in common? which was the, I think, goofy line I came up with to get people's attention, talk about not vanilla because people wouldn't think that Stephen Fry and um, Kristen Bell had anything in common. So we get people's attention. And that was the right. idea, a la what you're talking about. And we think that will work when we do it, not in a pandemic, but we have to do it as a campaign. And we can do, you know, what does Paul Simon, who's another one of the readers of our book, have in common, and you can keep with the same theme. So what we learned is single high, well-placed billboards not likely, you know, to do much unless you could say, "Win a free date with Kristen Bell." Download the QR code. Maybe that would have worked better, but we couldn't do that.
1: <laughs> I'm flying to New or, York right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So, um, so that was one one thing that that didn't work. Then another thing that didn't work was last giving season, which is no, mid November through the end of December in the United States we decided we would do podcast advertising. We had a grant, quite a large grant that we had gotten after a lot of hard work. We got a grant for close to a million dollars to do a lot of different things. And one of them was podcast advertising. So we spent $80,000 on podcast advertising but we didn't get in the right podcast. We relied on an aggregator who claimed that, oh, they were gonna get us a great deal and they were gonna put us in a lot of wonderful podcasts. Well, What has worked for us is making sure we get in the right podcast. So when Peter Singer, who is very well known, is interviewed by Ezra Klein, you know, that brings a lot of traffic and that gets a lot of donations. So what we've learned is we need to be a lot more patient. And even if we have to pay a lot of money to be in a particular podcast, um, we need to be in the right space for what our message and who the right viewers are. So podcast advertising is something like outdoor that we believe can work, but it has to be done properly. So that's something we did that didn't work the $80,000, but now um, we just need to figure out how to get into the right podcast. So podcast advertising is something that we think can work, but I believe that we need to test a lot of different channels, uh, not just digital channels like Facebook, that as of now hasn't really worked that well for us in terms of a positive ROI. It looks seductive because it's cheap. You can advertise on Facebook or YouTube, it's not that expensive. But then I think we're doing a test now on YouTube with some really cool videos in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we're we're just testing it because we haven't done YouTube advertising before. And we're gonna spend $6,000 in Portland over a period of six weeks to run this podcast advertising. So you'd have to stay tuned to see if it, if it can work. Another thing yeah. we did, I'm I'm all with this stuff that didn't work. We sent out 50,000 uh, postcards with the message that you could download the book. If you come to this page, you can download the book for free. Out of 50,000, we only got 39 people who downloaded the book. I mean, if you want to do the math on 50,000, uh, divided 39 divided by 50,000. There's a lot of zeros before the first number, right? 0.000. Yeah. Zero zero zero. So it didn't work. Um, it was cold. It was just a list that we put together of high net worth people and high net worth zip codes around the United States. And, uh, but we believe there may be a way to do direct marketing, but we haven't found it yet. We think it'll work a lot better if we get warmer leads and we, we, we send them to people who've shown some interest. Um, So I think the message I'm giving is I'm a huge believer that marketing in the nonprofit space works. You can look at St. Jude Hospital. You can look at UNICEF that built this great brand. You can look at American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, all these other brands. It does work. But the unfortunate thing is you need a fair amount of money to test your way into it. Somebody said, well, Charlie, what would you do if you got 10 million dollars? And I said, if I got $10 million for marketing, I'd lose $2 million right away. But then I'd really do well with the next $8 million. Because I don't think you can market. I don't care who you are, menswear house or whomever. You can't really market without testing your way into it. And you've got to figure out what works. And so I think if I were to leave with one message for nonprofit, market, definitely market. Be prepared to test and see what works and what doesn't work.
1: Well, i mean let's be honest like when you run facebook ads facebook is testing like they show your ad in front of all these different people so they discover over a period of time what is resonating best with what certain kinds of people and obviously they have like ai learning where like their their computer itself is learning as they go but i mean at the end of the day everyone's testing including the platforms running your ads right. <laughs> so okay. it makes sense we, if you had to speculate um Because, well, I don't know, I'll hear your opinion first. And then if I believe differently, I guess I'll mention, but uh, in your perspective, what's the big differentiator between men's warehouse and the nonprofit work you're doing in the sense that like, do you believe that like the status of the people you're trying to reach or just the sheer volume of people that you're trying to reach um, has played that huge part of why something that worked well for Men's Warehouse has not worked well in the charity space?
0: Well, I think to be honest, we haven't been able to do what we did at Men's Warehouse, which is saturated DMA with advertising and learn what is working um, because we haven't had the money to do that. So I'm not convinced that if we developed a really cool television c- campaign and tested it in Portland, Oregon or some other DMA, uh, and did it over and over again and tweeted it, it couldn't work or a radio campaign. By the way, the radio we ran, that was highly successful at the men's rush was customer testimonials. And we could even do something like that for the life. You can say, we can say, you know, I never really gave to charity very much, but then I gave $5,000 to save it. And I realized that a um, hundred children had their eyesight restored and I've seen videos of those children and it transformed my life or something like that. I mean, we, could, we haven't had the money to do that. But but the other thing is, if you're going to advertise, it's nice to advertise a product that people want. And the thing is, we're advertising something that a lot of people don't want. If we're advertising, give your money away and help some somebody. They say they want it, but actually putting their money where their mouth is is really different than saying you wanna do good. Um, I think what we have to show people is the actual impact because I think it's very abstract. So uh, buying a suit as unsexy as it is, is very concrete. Saving a child's life in Africa is very abstract. And I think in many ways, that's one of the big differences. I'm interested in your opinions.
1: Yeah, I I guess for me, I was just well, there's two things I'm thinking now that just even inspired by what you're saying right then is originally I was just thinking, you know what, like, lots of people had to buy a suit. Right. And so essentially, you have a you have a really large, like top of funnel that you can start getting people into, which is why you can run a TV ad because like, you know in my opinion, for someone to feel good about donating a, a chunk of money, like they've they've got to be doing pretty well, but like for a lot of people, especially, you know, back in the day of like, especially in my uh, dad's uh, time period, like lots of, it was really normal that you wore a suit to work like super normal. So like lots of people had to buy them. And so like your top of funnel was just really big. Whereas I feel like the top of funnel with, um, The life you can save is actually pretty stinking small in comparison. Like, I agree. That's one out of every, you know, 100,000 people or something like that is actually going to be one of those people that donate, as opposed to one out of five out of a suit. Maybe not anymore. I don't know if it's one
0: out of 100,000, but it is a smaller funnel, particularly if you're just choosing the most effective nonprofits because they're in Africa and South Asia. And 94% of all the donations that occur in the United States are domestic. People really believe that charity begins at home. So our funnel is by necessity a lot smaller because we're only talking about international donation. And so right there, the funnel is even smaller than you might have thought. I don't, it's not as small as one in hundred thousand, but, but, but it's only in terms of current people donating, it's only 6% of the people who are donating to charity.
1: Right, In One, it's like yeah. Well, even in the direct mail thing, it's like if I'm a super high net worth person, person, I probably have like a maid, and the chances of them not throwing that away, I don't know. It, it's tough to say because there's no context for why they're receiving the mailer. It's like it's it's, right, it, and
0: that's right, and we won't do that again. Not like that.
1: <laughs> right, I bet not. That's I would I was massively shocked how few people downloaded. I expected there to be a lot more than that than 39 but you know but at least you tried it at least you know
0: but you know what it's possible that that will turn out to be to pay off because let's say we have 39 emails now of people who downloaded the book if one of those people donates a lot of money then the positive there'll be a positive roi i mean it's odd because it's like looking for a needle in a haystack but one out of fifty thousand could couldn't make the whole thing productive it's kind of like a crapshoot you know
1: Yeah, I guess in that sense, like if you have their email, that's, that is incredibly valuable.
0: 39, but I don't know that I want to pay the money we pay to get 39 emails. I think I'd try something different next time.
1: Right. No, that makes sense.
0: I think talking about, see, one of the reasons we don't know more about advertising in the nonprofit sector is people don't talk about it the way I'm talking about it now. I mean, people, people don't want to talk about what didn't work, they don't even wanna talk about what did work. There's a sense of competitiveness. Mm, and yeah. so I, I just don't, there isn't a lot of discussion about marketing in the nonprofit world. Um, and that's part, of the, that's part of the problem. But I appreciate your letting me talk about it. I, when I was a psychologist, I worked with a doctor who, did a, who believed that he could make a diagnosis of a certain type of pneumonia, just clinically. He could literally, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details, but he believed that he could make a diagnosis in a completely unconventional way and that he would have a very high success rate. So we we examined 250 people that he diagnosed as having this mycoplasma pneumonia. And then we looked. there's a gold standard test. So we looked to see of the 250, how many actually had mycoplasma pneumonia, the ones that he said did. Do you know what the number was? Zero, and 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 he still was willing to go to a conference with me and 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 put that paper out there and and that guy had a lot of courage, I think.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I feel like that's a good way to bomb a career, but you know.
0: <laughs> well, he was a doctor. He didn't. Really, he wasn't a researcher. I mean, so but it was kind of. Right. It was kind of. It was amazing that he was willing to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, at least he tested it, but. Yeah. All a right. little shocking. He went and talked about it after finding the results of the test. Well, I was the one who wrote it up, not him, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, it's just interesting, you know, it. and at the end of the day, I think it's the nonprofit world and, and charities and ministries and all these things have such a weird dynamic going on because things like marketing or business or all that are, can be such dirty words in those industries, and yet right. they are the very things which make them successful. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, a, a business can't make an impact if it doesn't turn a profit and there aren't committed people running it and the organization isn't structured in a way to maximize the use of the funds. And I mean, like it's all interconnected, but people just don't want it to feel that way um and it's like you said too it's like a lot of people talk about wanting to be generous or giving and stuff like that but they just don't and so it's like this weird like warped reality that I think exists a lot in the nonprofit space where it's like you know people think of themselves as more generous than they are and that's a problem and that's a challenge and that's something that you as you know a psychologist have to work through and figure out like how do we How do we work around that? Because these people really do think they're generous, but they're not. I mean, some of them are, right? But I think
0: that we have to make the impact of their gifts more real to them. And we have to run our nonprofits the same way consumer packaged goods companies run their, if they think marketing is a dirty word, then I think they're making a big mistake. They're always going to have minuscule growth rates. I think the growth rates are going to come through really proper marketing.
1: Well, I know, I know it was really interesting. I ended up seeing a YouTube ad for Charity Water. The ad was 30 They've minutes long.
0: Yeah. Well, oh. Charity Water has Matt Damon. They have a, a good product, and that's an, you know, that's really different.
1: They have a lot of money, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do have a lot of money.
1: Because I don't know how much it costs to run a 30-minute ad on YouTube, but I'm guessing it's not cheap. Um, well, but it was fascinating to hear them explain the story of it.
0: We're spending $6,000 in P- Portland, Oregon alone for, I think, six 15-second or 30-second hands. So you can imagine. It's very, very expensive. But it could pay off because Charity Water has built a brand. And when people think about clean water in Africa, even if Charity Water is not the best place to give money in order to get clean water to people who need it, it's the one that people know. There's a charity that we support called Dispensers for Safe Water. And it's probably, I mean, I'm not here to give you the evaluation, but it's probably a lot more effective, but a lot smaller. And uh, you can you can find Dispensers for Safe Water on our website. I really do encourage your listeners who primarily are interested in marketing to check out our website uh, at thelifeyoucansave.org. And, and it's giving season. And so uh, I remind people that you might be among the really generous people
1: absolutely appreciate that um yeah it's um so okay so out, out, of, out of my own personal curiosity so is what uh, the life you can save is that kind of like a marketing type thing for these charities or is it because like obviously you guys are promoting them yeah. in some way by having these like vetted we're the, people we're, on there we're
0: basically yeah we're we're promoting these 22 charities So we refer to ourselves as a meta charity. We're not in and of itself in the business of collecting money for us, except to promote them. We want money for ourselves because we raise $17 for those charities. So in the last three years for every dollar we spend. So we're very gift to the life you can save is highly productive, but the whole goal is to raise money for them. Just my wife and I, have given away a lot of money that I made at the men's warehouse uh, because we never even expected to make money. I did, you know, as you can tell, I was a psychologist. I just, George recruited me. So uh, we were just very fortunate to get this money and we wanted to give a lot away, but we've given we've given six sevens of the money we've given away has gone directly to the life you can save, not to our recommended charities because we need to support the organization in order yeah. to raise money for those charities.
1: That's cool. Well, I mean, if you you know, if the marketing is as challenging as you say, then all of those charities, no matter how wonderful, probably need as, as much help as as they can get making the I mean, even if it's not just to get by just to actually make the impact that they want to make, you know, because unless they are, uh, you know, actively growing, then they're, they're not actively increasing. Uh, how many people they make an impact on and that that matters so
0: that's yeah it does matter a lot to all of us and uh, to the people who benefit from those charities uh there's 5.3 million children every year dying of preventable largely preventable illnesses so there's a lot of good work that can be done if you give your money to the right places.
1: awesome well uh just to out of respect for your time since we're going a little bit over um where can people uh reach out and get a hold of you and learn more about what you're up to
0: at charlie c h a r l i e at the life you dot charlie c h a r l i e at the life you dot
1: awesome cool and we'll make sure to have uh links to the website and in uh, any descriptions or um bios uh, in anywhere we post the content so that way people can link over to it so
0: well thank you very much i I hope that all my talk of uh experiences in marketing that haven't worked uh not discouraging people because i can tell you what does work are the charities that we support
1: that's awesome no i really appreciate you sharing it it's uh it's 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 been really cool uh, you know it just 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 the fact that like, you know, we live in such a digital world and it's been cool to see like you talk about like the brand building and um, all of the shifts that have been made over the years like, you know, obviously we're always going to go through more and more shifts in markets and so it's uh, cool to know that the psychology and the really the foundations of marketing remain true it's just how that they how do they express themselves in each new shift.
0: Well, we were always told from the very beginning by George that we had to read David Ogilvy, So uh, that's an old style marketing, but uh, I suggest even in the digital world, maybe people read David Ogilvy.
1: I think so too. Awesome. Well, thank you All so right. much for being on thank here. You. Bye.
0: Thank you. Right. Thank you want to cause no problems i just want to live my life but i keep on hearing about nonsense me my don't donzing mobs but you know when you see imposters we know how to read
1: them faces same way you know how to read them comments if you want to talk let's talk about right here make sure your walking your talk is constant thank you so much for watching this episode of the death to vanilla podcast now if you made it this far I'm guessing you probably heard something that was inspiring or helpful and we would love to hear about it so if you could drop that information in the comments or shoot me an email stephen at burhardt creativeativeancy.com That would go a long way to helping us choose guests and create content that really bring you value. Now, Instagram is my favorite social media platform, but I'm sure you have yours, and so we encourage you to find us on your favorite platform so that you have a chance to learn more about marketing that can help you out. Now, they say, a rising tide rises all boats. So we ask that you would like, subscribe, and follow us, so that way the traffic that we get to our channel helps all of the guests that have been on. Our traffic is their traffic and that helps everybody out and it's super easy to do. So if you could rate us, like us, add us, follow us, whatever you need to do to help us out, that would go a long way. So we appreciate you and hope to catch you on the next episode of the Death of Vanilla podcast.